Hello and welcome to Radio SGN. I am one of your humble hosts, A.V. Eichenbaum. The A stands for agitated. And with me, as always, is Lindsay Anderson, who just drove back from Spokane and braved the elements and braved Spokane in general to get here today so we can record. Lindsay, how was your trip? Oh my gosh, my trip was interesting. Um, I feel like I have achieved um, an LGBTQ rite of passage um, because I have officially lost a close friend based on my beliefs and identity. So that's great. Do you want to talk about that or? You know, it is super fun and funny. I can talk on it briefly though. Yeah, my best college friend, uh, roommates for four years, uh, just got engaged and didn't say a word to me and is not inviting me to the wedding because after I came out to her, she stopped talking to me and I feel like this is the icing on the cake of this friendship is over. But, you know, that's going to be a fun marriage for them. They've been dating for three months, so. Straight people. What are you going to do? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry to anybody listening to this that is straight. I'm so sorry for you. I don't think I've lost any friends for coming out. I have lost friends for much worse uh, because, you know, I'm not always a good person. Anyway, today's... Was <laughs> I supposed to argue with that? <laughs> You're a great no, person. No, no, you weren't. Please. The no, best. Um, and my boss. I, I love a raise. <laughs> I, yeah. I was not actually fishing for anything. I was just stating a fact. <laughs> Um, I'm better than I used to be, and I'm working on it every day, and that's all that we can hope for in this crazy world. Yep, speaking of crazy and not talking about being gay, Florida's new Don't Say Gay Law is, um, having some updates. (laughs) We... Was that... That was perfect. That was an amazing segue. I know I usually do the segues, but God, gotta have you do them more often. What, what is going on with Don't Say Gay? They are saying you can't say gay in schools. You're not allowed to teach anyone about any of the uh, spectrum of sexuality outside of straightness. It's a little more nuanced than that. Um, So for preschool to third grade, they cannot say gay, cannot talk about um, anything LGBTQ. And beyond that, they are allowed to mention it um, as long as it is appropriate and historically accurate. So I believe they're allowed to say, you know, in 2015, gay marriage was passed in the Supreme Court, you know, because that's it's a landmark Supreme Court case and it's a part of US history, but they're not gonna teach a unit on it. They're not gonna talk about Stonewall. They're not gonna talk about queer icons and um, students that bring up those topics will be shut down in class. And if parents believe that teachers are violating this act, they can call in and complain, and the teachers can potentially lose their jobs if this is proven. Just to clarify, you said from kindergarten to third grade, and that's it? Kindergarten to third grade is absolutely not talking about gay at all. Um, beyond that, it is still very strict not talking about like queer history. It's not in um, curriculum at all, but it's mm-hmm. less specific. So, you know, the word gay or queer could be said without it being like seen as a slur basically but you know it also brings up the point of kids in third grade and under that maybe have gay parents they can't talk about their families in class um because it's too inappropriate for them only in historical context because yes yes 
being gay is a thing of the past. Exactly. <laughs> it's not going to be included okay. in like uh, health classes, sex ed. Um, there won't be math problems where Bob and his husband Bill are buying 100 pineapples at the store. That sucks. It does suck. Um, it also means that teachers that are gay um, can't talk about their spouses. I, I remember teachers going on tangents about their family all the time, mm-hmm. but if this teacher is queer, um, they can't have pictures up of, of their you know wedding, they can't have uh, pride flags in their classroom, things like that. And so it's running into legal trouble because it's terrible and inhumane. It is, and it might also violate Title IX, which protects LGBTQ students from discrimination federally. But Title IX is... It's been debated a lot how far the extent of protecting queer children goes. So, like, for instance, um, BYU is able to discriminate against LGBTQ students despite Title IX because they are not a federally funded school. So Title IX would apply to all public schools that would let um, the Don't Say Gay law still go into effect at private institutions. Hmm. Title IX also primarily was written for sex-specific discrimination. And so a lot of conservatives argue that sexual orientation is not the same as sex, and so they can discriminate under Title IX on the basis of orientation. Basically that, you know, a don't-say-female law would be ridiculous. Right, got it. It'll it'll be a battle, and we should keep watching to see what happens. Um, But that's kind of what's going on right now with the don't-say-gay law. Well, that really makes me very angry. Speaking of anger, look, see, I can do it too. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of anger, you went to a protest. You went to a couple of protests last week. The anti-war protests seemed a lot more disjointed mm-hmm. and smaller. And the abortion rights statement saying, hey, we want rights was, was well attended, but also people flew in from all over to protest it, which I didn't even... So counter protesters from San Francisco flew in and uh washington dc those seem like they have better things to do than come to seattle but apparently not just coming from one of the more conservative parts of the state if not the country over the weekend i was reminded that the conservative agenda believes that seattle and portland right now are two of the most dangerous places in america um so for these people they think that they are doing god's work in flying out here you know it's like they're going to the front lines. You know, if you're trying to get into the head, I don't know why you'd want to, but into the head of a conservative, that might be why they were willing to um, fly all the way out here for a counter-protest. Let's think about this. Why would that be, right? Probably Mm -hmm. because there was the CHOP in 2020, and then there were a lot of protests that went on for a long time and riots in Portland. So they got a lot of news coverage, and they're two areas that are completely surrounded by more conservative zones. Yeah. And, um, you know, in Portland a couple weeks ago, they had another Black Lives Matter protest that ended with a fatal shooting of an advocate for Black Lives Matter. So it's it's hitting the news, and um, conservatives are really bashing on Seattle right now. The anti-war protest was pretty peaceful. Reading your pieces... I saw, and the, the, you sent a thousand mm-hmm. photos, which were all very helpful for me, but uh, I saw that some of the signs were like, no war, but also no sanctions, but also like, we have to do something, but 
we shouldn't do anything. Yeah, I think that what the sanctions are very powerful symbolically, but the point that they've made is that Putin himself and this war should be fought. You know, if it's going to be fought, it should be fought against Putin and not against the Russian people um, because they're not, you know, united in this cause, not in the same way that we've seen other, you know, people rally for any kind of a genocide. Um, I agree with you and I, you know, am not opposed to the sanctions to the same extent that some of these protesters were. Um, but I would argue that, um, and this is what a lot of them were saying, we need to provide more aid to the Russian people who are then, you know, going to suffer financially and possibly, you know, experience starvation um, if the sanctions go on for too long. Um, because we know Putin's a dictator and he doesn't care about the the civilians that are going to be hurt ultimately by his actions. A lot of our oil comes from Russia, and that means that a lot of their economy is driven by the U.S. I'm also anti-oil, though, so, you know, I think we should be focusing on companies on our home soil that create jobs, that invest in businesses and ways to use power that don't destroy the planet. So it's like, it works for me in a couple of different ways. So we have a really great interview coming up, and then we're going to jump right back into this and start talking about, I really want to talk about the protest that you attended um, for uh, abortion rights, but we're going to jump to, it's a fairly full interview with Alexa Manila, who, if you don't know who that is, you're missing out. You're going to know all about her right after these ads. Radio SGN is brought to you by the Washington Department of Health. The Washington Department of Health is partnering with Seattle Gay News in order to bring you up-to-date information about your vaccination. For more information, go to doh.wa.gov or cdc.gov vaccines. That's doh.wa.gov or cdc.gov vaccines. Melissa Etheridge returns in concert with her One Way Out tour. Friday, April 8th at the Snoqualmie Casino Ballroom. Melissa Etheridge, live. Performing music from her new album, One Way Out, available now. And performing her classics. Buy tickets now at snocasino.com. Melissa Etheridge, in concert. Hi, this is Dr. V. Hill with V. Hill Family Medicine, and I would like to tell you a quick story about my primary care practice. I had a patient text me about a cat bite injury to her hand, and she was worried it was now infected. I saw her in clinic that day, cleaned the wound, and arranged for a tetanus shot and antibiotics, saving her critical time, an ER visit, and hundreds of dollars. If you want to know how direct primary care can benefit you, contact me at 253-693-0071 or at VIGILMD.com. Something wicked this way comes, and she's wielding a wire hanger. Peaches Christ and yours truly, Hecklina, are bringing our outrageous hit show, Mommy Queers, to Seattle's Broadway Performance Hall for a one-night-only special engagement, April 9th. In Mommy Queerist, aging star Peaches Christ must do something to boost her public appeal. In a desperate attempt to attract attention, she adopts a brand new drag daughter, Hectina. Mommy Queerist, one night only, April 9th. Buy tickets today at OutrageOnStage.com. Joining me today via Zoom, she's an activist, an actor, a mental health advocate. She has too many awards to list. Goddess of the diamond-encrusted mic, 
former empress of the court of Seattle, sainted by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence at the Abbey of St. Joan, a vital member of our community here in Seattle and someone that I am just thrilled to be speaking to today, Alexa Manila. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Ash. Good day to you. It's oh my gosh. Uh, what a beautiful introduction. I don't feel like I'm worthy now to follow that. Are you kidding? Anybody, <laughs> anybody who has done any sort of research into our guest today or has been in the community at all knows who you are and knows that you're definitely worthy of that introduction, uh, maybe even more. I'm definitely very humbled, Ash. Thank you so much. <laughs> I may have to uh, copy that introduction and use it for future events. That was so sweet. Uh, again, I, I truly am just very humbled by that introduction. But how are you, Ash? Happy, uh, well, it's Friday right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing all right. It's interesting. Uh, you you knew George. I did not. Um, he left He left some pretty big shoes to fill, impossible to fill. But I'm, I'm happy to be taking the paper in a direction that keeps it alive. And I'm happy to be part of the community in a more active way. So I'm thrilled to be here. How have you been? Really good, really good. But real quick, uh, you know, as part of the larger LGBTQ community and really the Seattle community, we're just really honored that you took the reins. And oh. it really does take a village, you know, and I'm just I'm just happy that you, you took on this leadership role with Seattle Gay News being such a historic and I, iconic, you know, uh, symbol of our community, of our histories. And yeah, what a, what a beautiful way to keep that, that flame ablaze, as they say. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be where I am. I was hired as a part-time writer and I kind of just stumbled into the leadership position. I think, I think maybe that's important to note because I wasn't gunning for it at, at all. I'm kind of happy that the seat chose me in a way, you know, and I'm, yeah, I'm really flattered uh, by that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, you know, sometimes magic just happens, right? You just let <laughs> yeah. it be, let, uh, well, whatever we're going to call it, mother nature or the universe, mm -hmm. let, let it take over and just follow along because it just knows where your spirit is. It just knows where your energy is. And with what I've been witnessing thus far, I just really enjoy the transformation and the evolution that I see, you know, physically with the paper, both in physical hard copy form and, and the online, you know, uh, facade, yeah. of, you know, the, the paper. It's, it's really amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. It's really nice to have a website that looks like it's from this decade. It's cool. It's very, mm -hmm. very cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, our team is great. I'm thankful for them every day. Uh, we got a great mix of classic SGN voices and, and new kids mm -hmm. coming up. So I've had a lot of different jobs and I don't think I've had a job at where every morning I'm like, all right, let's get to work, you know, quite mm -hmm. like this one. So, you I know, I noticed you said classic, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I think Maggie will appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate Maggie. So, you know, yeah, it's been a strange, strange year for me. A yeah. lot has changed. Oh boy. And it's really odd to do the math when we say one year anniversary. I don't know about you, but with the pandemic, with COVID, I literally have been catching myself discounting at first all of 2020. And now I feel like I've also subtracted year 2021. It's as if the first two years of the pandemic never really happened. It just kind of, yes, of course it did happen. Yeah. But it's like when I do my math, 
I don't count it. So I suppose you could say I'm a, a two years younger. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's that's wild to me because it's not like you disappeared during those years either. You no. were part of Mayor Harrell's transition mm -hmm. uh, board. Are you still working with the mayor? Uh, so that one was for the transition and we'll be continuing to participate in it and in whatever the mayor's uh, team you know sees uh, fit i was uh, assigned with the uh, safety and social justice subcommittee of the of the uh, transition team and it really was an amazing group of people that i got to meet and i really just appreciated their intentionality about ensuring that it was diverse mm -hmm. um, and the conversations uh you know were really for the most part, it was definitely very heavy, but I just really appreciated our transparency, uh, both our humility and, and the confidence that we had engaging in conversation and ensuring that our voices from the community was relayed to this new administration. And, you know, so far so good, right? Uh, it's not going to be overnight. Mm -hmm. uh, I know it's going to take a while, but it takes a village. I've already mentioned this yeah, once. This yeah. is not, not any different. You know, it does take a village and it will take all of us to be part of not just the conversation, but the action portion of it. You know, we got to match what we say with how we do it. Absolutely. Yeah, it was definitely an yeah. honor. And, uh, I, and I know there were other LGBTQ and POC folks involved in it. So uh, but it, it, it really was truly an honor to be to be part of it. And as a long time you know, resident, particularly of the international district, people turn, you know, turn the paper, they, they often see events, activities happening within the core downtown area. And, you know, I'm not immune to that. I definitely see it. It's, I mm -hmm. often say it's in my front yard, not just in my backyard, it's literally in my front yard, yeah. where you see the, these uh, events happening. But yeah, yeah, it was a really great experience to be part of it. And I hope to continue to lend my voice alongside other folks that I value and respect and admire. I'm looking forward to seeing what comes of that. Bruce Harrell was on the show, uh, as you may know. You know, he had a lot of things to say. Uh, he and I differ, I think, mainly on police reform. I'm, I'm an abolitionist. And um, I think he seems like a really genuine person. And it's good to see someone who really cares, even if I don't agree with him on everything. But if you don't, if you don't disagree on you know one or two things with someone then something's wrong something's off there in my opinion you know yeah. i believe in respectful discourse absolutely know? i mean yeah. that adage agree to disagree sometimes i think they, it's taken for granted mm -hmm. for me i take it a step further and really look out into the future what is the end goal are mm -hmm. we going to reach the similar the same goal as fellow human beings if we get there anyway let's do it and as long as yeah. we're not harming other people along the way Who's to say that just because we have a differing opinion on how things can be done, is it really a problem, right? And we all come from different backgrounds, different histories, different traumas even, right? And we base our opinions, our morals, our values, our goals based on how we were raised, how we were socialized, how we were educated, mm -hmm. right? And how we survive and thrive through different life experiences, right? And then yeah. there's the age piece, the gender piece, the, you know, all these identities that we adhere to. So th that in itself will naturally inform our opinions in varying degrees. Mm -hmm. So we just have to accept that, you know? Now, I do have to put my foot down around Russia, of course. Um, yeah. that, I know that's a different topic. That's a different podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But all just to say that we're all connected, 
-hmm. you know, we are all Ukraine, right? And, and yeah, I'm getting, getting sidetracked. This one in particular, not only do I know someone who is from Ukraine, but it really reminded me of my mother's own experience during Japanese occupation Manila mm -hmm. or the Philippines at the time in the late 40s. And so that's also like something that's real to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't alive in the 40s, but my mom was such an amazing storyteller. She brought me there when she, uh, you know, when she would tell me these stories, you know, I grew up through martial law, you know, during the Marcos regime. So mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with how power hungry people are in these positions in our own little ways we can get to support it even if it just means a prayer or two i know some people discount that oh prayer this on social media you know what it's it's what people can do in that moment we also have to care for you know it's we have to recognize our capacities and abilities if you have the means for it, by all means you know donate to unicef donate through the ukrainian embassy you know uh if you're able to perhaps volunteer in person, if you're able to, you know, in the neighboring countries, Doctors Without Borders, that sort of thing, you know, if we have the ability to, but I don't think that we should discount people who are saying a prayer or two, even if it just means it's through social media. We have to honor and respect that that's the best that some people can do is to say a prayer or two. Let's jump real quick back <laughs> to <laughs> back to COVID. And yeah. uh, today, this episode is our first of 2022 working with the Department of Health. Uh, the Washington Department of Health is the reason we could get this show off the ground in the first place, the first four episodes, way back in 2021, which feels like a billion years ago. We're through that and we had some great guests. And we're talking today with you because you have billed yourself or have been billed as a therapist and social activist by day and a socialite by night. And we are here to talk about the uh, the mental health effects of COVID, you know, everyone gets that, you know, wearing your mask, even though that's not necessary right now, we just took masks away again, uh, you know, getting the shot, washing your hands, those are all things that we can do, they're tangible, they're visible things, but the mental health aspect of it, isolation, paranoia, that can affect people just as much, if not more. What are your thoughts on all of that? What I think about is even pre-COVID, as it is, like the statistics just keep coming back persistently, you know, the same, at the same rate, according to NAMI, and we know, you know, and it keeps repeated over and over, and, and according to other sources as well, that LGB adults are more than twice as likely than our heterosexual counterparts to experience, well, one, any mental health condition, and then on top of that, trans-identified folks are nearly four times as likely than our cisgender counterparts experience mental health illnesses, conditions, et cetera. And, and I know I'm very specific about the language because, you know, as we know, language keeps evolving and, and, and I'm glad that we are continuing to embrace other languages that really reflects our community. But having said that, just even pre-COVID, mm -hmm. you can just imagine, well, not even imagine, there are poll, uh, polls now from uh, as latest as 2021 indicating that it's more than that again because of the impact of the pandemic as it is, right? So already we're twice as likely to experience a mental health condition for LGB folks and then trans folks are even more four times likely. And then when we think about LGB youth, they're twice as likely you know, to experience 
you know, sadness, depression, and even depressive symptoms uh, and suicide yeah. compared to, you know, uh, heterosexual uh, youth counterparts. It's really already so problematic. And then you add COVID mm. to your point, the isolation alone. Now, even though just in general, LGBTQ folks did access more mental health support than our heterosexual counterparts, we still have the problem that we don't have as many LGBTQ affirming Mm. basis Mm -hmm. so that still becomes a problem right and then on top of that just the the lgbtq cultures that we have to face you know in in and out of history coming out and then with coming out we have to consider rejection right and on top of that we have to think about trauma you know whether it's known or not known and sometimes a pandemic like this is what triggers a trauma Mm -hmm. and depending on our resilience factor and the, the social support network that we have as individuals, that can vary on how we can overcome these things, right? And on top of that, substance use, right? And already we know that we're twice as likely to experience some type of substance use disorder. And people kept talking about, I mean, they made it into memes, how, how much more we started drinking. And that's just, we talk about it in the general public, right? And so yeah, imagining what that was like, oh, what it is still for us right oh absolutely and then we know that you know at the in the midst of the pandemic homelessness was such a big topic not just in seattle but really all across major cities in the united states and the thing is we here we are as a as a, as a mainstream community we're talking about homelessness but we have to also consider that lgbtq folks particularly youth and young adults experience homelessness at 120 percent higher risk than someone who does not identify as LGBTQ. So it's, it's astronomical. And so it's really important that uh, not just for information and education that we understand this, mm-hmm. right? Because when we, when we have information like this, when we have data that is shared, we look at conversation differently. Then we have a, a more positive response to these types of conversations that I hope becomes more action oriented, right? That what we see on social media to the conversations that happen at the table is fruitful. So all to say, I would like for our community to be extra sensitive, but also extra responsive. We often joke about, you know, throwing shade here and there, but we have to be we have to be quite compassionate when we you know default to that throwing shade attitude, yeah. you know, particularly around queens, uh, of course as a, as a stereotype. But I'm just using that as real life metaphor. But being conscientious and cautious, you know, of what we say to others because we don't really know what's happening for them when we leave that moment of interaction, right? And then. And then employment, we already know a lot of people lost their jobs. And many LGBTQ folks, particularly trans folks, have alternative means of employment for mm-hmm. many reasons. Historically, you know, uh, trans and gender diverse people struggled with maintaining a job because of how we look, right? Mm-hmm. And it's slowly changing. Yes, there's ENDA, Employment Non-Discrimination Act, but I always point out there's policy, and then there's practice. <laughs> right, yeah. Those are two very 
different things, right? Mm -hmm. Just because you say, oh, it's, it's, it's legal, but how is it enacted? Once you get to rural areas, I'd be very cautious, you know, mm -hmm. as one of the reasons why, and I, I recognize my, my, my uh, advantage. I don't want to say privilege because as, a, as an immigrant, as a person of color, being gender diverse, I, don't, I try not to use the word privilege because for me, it's a very specific word that I associate with people within certain positions of power and privilege. Yeah. Um, but I do recognize I, I do have an advantage that I can get to live in the metro Seattle area. Mm -hmm. But I'm very much aware that as soon as I step out of the metro Seattle area, it's a different world. You know, it's a different world, you know, around acceptability and, and compassion for people like us. And I wear my gender on my sleeves. Yeah. From head to toe. Right. You know? there, but absolutely, there was a time when I, take it with a grain of salt, where I thought I was, you know, trying to be butch and trying not to, uh, you know, attract attention. But sure. that was for safety reasons. You know, yeah. I actually quite enjoy public transportation. Uh, I've taken the bus in drag, full drag. Yeah. But no, no, I, I, I get it though. I'm just say commuting from downtown to another similarly close area mm. when I would do a, a talk uh, on trans topics in one yeah. of the classes I've been doing for 10 plus years. And I actually would do that intentionally. One, to just experience what it's like and sort of do an informal observation of society. Mm -hmm. And I try to bring that experience as one of the conversations that I bring up during the panel discussion, just the feeling of safety, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, other topics come up around passability, et cetera. Yes, of course, like if I know I'm going to be using public transportation, I'm not going to put as much accoutrements, as they say, <laughs> on my body. You know, I'll try to be sort of you know, big coat, you know, light makeup. But then as soon as I get to the venue, more stuff comes out of the bag. <laughs> So th those are the things that I think about um, just around, you know, the need for compassionate and LGBTQ centered, sensitive and culturally appropriate care, because, you know, our community is uniquely impacted. Mm -hmm. Health disparities already exist as it is pre-COVID, and we know the global impact I think this is a redundant, was universal or is universal. But for our community, it was, there's this like extra check on the box that we don't want checked. It, it, it's just the way that it's happening for many reasons, historic, systemic, you know, it's just the isms that we experience. And then on top of that, racism, sexism, we, we already experience how people of color, particularly black, LGBTQ people experience it differently than, mm -hmm. than the rest of us. Me as a brown person, you know, I know that I have a different experience than that of my uh, black LGBTQ siblings. I know yeah. that that's a different experience. And so I want to take this opportunity to really recognize that. And even if it just means saying that to ourselves and recognize our either like our whiteness or our non-blackness recognize that but also ask yourself what is it that I'm experiencing better than my LGBTQ siblings I think that will help us understand better what all these other health disparities why they're occurring but also how it intersects with other issues because I think often when we talk about health disparities particularly around mental health we disregard the intersectionality of race 
mm-hmm. and gender, yeah. right? It's often Absolutely. from the lens of the gay, cisgender, white male. <laughs> yeah, which right? lucky for me, I pass. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, I think about that all the time because I, uh, I have bipolar type two, but you can't like click a button and be like, oh, hey, that person's got bipolar. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm very high functioning despite everything for that. You finally got medicated after like a billion years. But, and then I am mask passing, even though I'm non-binary, I'm omnisexual, bisexual, and I'm in a, I'm in a relationship with a cisgender bisexual woman. And I'm very, I mean, I'm Jewish heritage and my granddad is a brown Jewish man. My, you know, but I'm very clearly, I look like the Aryan ideal, you know, if you don't look too close. So I, I gotta be, you know, aware of all of these privileges that I do have. I live in a very liberal city where uh, every other podcaster looks exactly like me. And um, I definitely, I definitely benefit from that. And uh, it's so strange it's so strange because I feel often I'm on the outside looking in on, mm-hmm. on all fronts. It's a position that puts me as an observer in a lot of ways. And I'm, that's another privilege, right? So to, when I choose to act, I choose to be in protests or I choose to do this job, which very specifically outs me <laughs> as part of the LGBTQ community. It comes from a place of privilege uh, rather than a place of need. Right. So I, I am faced with that every day. Um, and it's not a struggle by any means. I just it's something I think about quite a bit. Speaking of outsider looking in, and you did bring this up a little bit, there is a generational difference, I believe, that I'm experiencing more going into the SGN of the way that um, the LGBTQ community interacts with itself, especially the, uh, the throwing shade. You know, that's a huge thing uh, in the community. And I'm wondering, how do you think that's affected people's mental health when it comes to COVID, beyond COVID? Do you think that over time, that sort of defense mechanism, because that's what I believe it is, um, has affected the community in Seattle as a whole? Complex one. But can I come back to that real quick? Because I want to acknowledge what you just did moments ago about self-identifying and being so transparent about all of your identities. And I just, see my wish and my hope is that more of us, if not all of us, you know, took ownership and transparency and humility with our self-identities. Because for the longest time, we rely on, on visibility and what we see on the surface. You know, when conversation have started to include pronouns, like I, I would hear people say, well, of course I'm a he. <laughs> or of course, uh, no, actually, that's not right. true. You know, I need you to expand on that. And even though it's, it sounds awkward, like there's all these many things, but what's really happening is you're informing, educating, you're, you're welcoming the person in front of you into your life. And, and you are opening the door and letting them in to tell them who you are so that it could inform the conversation and not just the conversation, but the relationship. No matter how short that conversation may be, I mean, that could flourish into a deeper relationship, a friendship, et cetera. But I really, really just appreciate it when people take that time. Because I even have to, you know, to remind myself to do the same thing. And often what happens is 
in mixed communities, the, ex the expectation that someone would dig deep into their identities is somebody like me, not mm -hmm. from a cisgender white appearing person, right? They don't expect that. But people other than them, that's expected of us. And I know that that seems awkward, but I think we have to get over that bump to get to a place where at some point, our oppressive response to other than the positions of power and privilege, being cis, being white, uh, being straight, being male, being educated, being well off, et cetera. Yeah, I just want to show appreciation for that. We have to have those conversations because I think that will normalize how we look at each other. And mm -hmm. I would really love it that I'm old. I would really love it in my lifetime and the lifetime of my fellow peers around my age, when we come back to that generational thing, <laughs> is that we won't be as hung up on sexuality, mm. on gender, and on race. That is my hope. I'm a I, I try to stay very positive with my yeah. outlook, and I often get uh, criticized for that, for being so happy, happy. This is my own resilience factor. It's my own, this is my own coping. You know, the fact that you, you disclosed about, you know, being bipolar, I have, I have a lot of respect for that because this society has created so much stigma over our mental wellness, Absolutely. right? And, and who's to say we're all, anyone is perfect. We have to get to a place where we can say it with, without fear of rejection. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you for, for saying that. Yeah. I believe very strongly that maybe it's a little dichotomous or maybe it's a little black and white, but there are only really two lenses to look through when you look at the world, right? Like we don't know everything, oh, but you know, we don't know anything pretty much, but mm -hmm. you know, knowing that you can either look at what you don't know with fear or you can mm -hmm. face it with curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I believe like, it's always like people like love or hate. It's, no, it's, it's the baser than that. It's, it's an inner feeling that's even mm -hmm. deeper than that, in my opinion. Yeah. So to look at a, someone with fear, to look at um, something new or different with mm -hmm. fear, I feel like the response is going to be a lot more defensive, a lot more closed mm -hmm. off. But when you take a look at the world through the lens mm -hmm. of curiosity, you're going to want to learn more and you're going to be more open. And it's just, I feel it's just a better way to be in general. Of course, fear is good. <laughs> fear yeah. is, you know, but it's, it, I don't think it should be the default. So Maybe. I try to be as open as possible about yeah. it everything yeah there's different ways of responding for sure and what comes to mind is the uh, you know fight flight or freeze right you know and 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 that's a reaction to survival and then the other piece i wanted to share was i think people who are in an allyship or an ally position if not role to take advantage of, of that and stand next to us and fight the isms you know mm -hmm. there's an opportunity for them to fight with us you know, it, people of color, particularly Black folks, shouldn't be the only ones fighting against racism, right? Mm -hmm. It should include, myself included, you know, as a brown person, as an immigrant, but for white folks, again, that adage takes a village. Um, I think yeah, it's also uh, important for white folks to not just say they're fighting for it and then say, oh, look at what a good white person I am. That's something oh, yeah, no, that's, yeah. Mm -hmm. we got to draw the line somewhere you guys yeah. we get everything yeah. else let's yeah. just say it do, the do right it <laughs> off of uh, off of social media mm. <laughs> you know mean it when no one else is watching 
Yeah, exactly. No, Absolutely. I totally agree. And I love what you said about curiosity, like thinking on a personal note, like to simplify it, like with drag, I, I've been doing drag for 20 years-ish and I I would definitely say I'm I so far I'm still always curious about makeup. Like I continue to learn tips and tricks of makeup, and I know it seems so so superficial, but it's also part of how I create the persona that I show to the public. But it allows me to be curious about drag. It allows me to use it continuously as a as an outlet for art and creativity. So I definitely I've managed to stay curious. Now, I will also say, yes, that I also experience fear. And I think the rationale for some of the ways fear exhibits in my behavior is fear of rejection, mm-hmm. fear of failing. You know, I've certainly you know, made decisions or not done things out of fear, you mm-hmm. know, be it academic pursuits, be it overwhelming tasks that I might feel like, oh, I don't know if I could do this, like that Mm self-doubt. But I also recognize as a clinician, as a professional, that imposter syndrome definitely weasels its way into my workspace. Part of that is is cultural. Part of that is just being socially conditioned as a person of color to kind of stay in my lane, you know? Mm. But I, you know, slowly I try to challenge that and just continue to educate myself and be around other people who look like me and are doing good things for other people out in the community. Because I think that influence is very strong and it's important to, to surround oneself with people who you value and respect. And hopefully it's mutual because that's how you lift each other. Yeah, right? that kind of circles back to my earlier question about the uh, throwing shade. You know, mm-hmm. when I took over, uh, again, accidentally with the SGN, uh, there mm-hmm. was a lot of white, gay, male-centric hegemony mm-hmm. uh, that we focused on on the paper and, and in the community as a whole, even though most of them are moving to Bellevue. It's something that has been on my mind quite a bit. And that fear of being rejected, I'd never felt that in that way every sort of thing was being scrutinized by these older (laughs) white guys, you know, they're like, oh, you're not gay enough, you know, or just, you're not queer in the same way I am. You're not, you know, and there was a lot of that. And I think that that's something that I know it's not just me. I think it's potentially toxic to the community. And I'm wondering how we can fight that. Is it just being more open with one another? Because it's not like anyone's actively doing it intentionally. I think it's just sort of systemic or cultural at this point on Capitol Hill. I don't think anyone's really at fault. It's just, what do we do with that, you know? The first step is knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. I think part of it is recognizing why is it that we do the things we do? And to your point, I couldn't agree more. Part of this is systemic, historic, and there's a bit, you know, there's social conditioning. We even though we claim our unique special identities as LGBTQ plus peoples, we were born into society that is mainstream, heterosexual, white, etc. right? Mm-hmm. So we are conditioned to follow that as the standard. And, and it's so subconscious, right? It's in, the, it's in church, it's in the school system, it's in our neighborhood. We have to recognize that there is something that is just in there. And I think part of that is to start making changes slowly but surely. 
Mm-hmm. And I say slowly because there are a lot of people who just don't understand it quite yet. Take, for example, the don't say gay legislation, right? That is problematic because what came to mind immediately was our own referendum that we passed last year, right? Where we now have sex education that's comprehensive and that is age appropriate. And I think Washington state historically has, and I don't know, this is just my observation. I feel that we have LGBTQ compassionate legislators and more liberal and more equitable politicians I think have recognition of this formula to do it slowly but surely. A great example is marriage equality. Beforehand, we were only asking for domestic partnership. And this was, you know, Cal Anderson time. This was Ed Murray. And to now, fast forward to now, it's across all these 50 states of the United States, right? Yeah. And so I think we did it slowly but surely. And yes, it took decades. However, had we been and I know this is just an opinion. So people, if you're listening, just bear with me for a second. I'm not necessarily saying that I'm only a pacifist, but I think with this particular topic, it was effective by doing it slowly, but surely, and not doing it so aggressively, so hard from step one, Mm. from day one. I think it worked to our benefit. And even though, yes, it was a long time, I still believe that we are, there are still a significant number of people, particularly in the LGBTQ community, who are benefiting now from the product of the labor of our LGBTQ for fathers and mothers and parents. And also language, I come back to language. We have to really craft ways so that it's palatable. Not everybody's gonna like it sweet, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And not, but not everybody's gonna like it salty, bitter, sour, etc. But we have to offer all of those tastes, mm-hmm. right? And I think, this again, the sex ed, comprehensive sex ed that's that's age appropriate is one of those examples. And I think that's why it passed for us. And how wonderful now that we will have youth of our generation that can feel seen through the school system. Yeah. I remember as a kid where I'm learning about sex ed and I'm like, okay, uh, of course I didn't have the vocabulary, right? Yeah. And that's a problem right there. We don't have, back then we didn't have the vocabulary, but now we are continuing to create vocabulary that's inclusive of LGBTQ people and our culture, right? I want to say lifestyle, our culture, you know, Mm -hmm. our norms, right? We're beginning to insert them into medical books. We are beginning to insert them into curricula. And I think it's so powerful that a young child, you know, as appropriate, is learning about the diversity of human beings. I think, my fingers crossed, that it will have a positive impact on bullying. Because if the conversations are happening and it's being normalized between the teacher and the students and their peers, we are seeing that the stigma and the shame is lessened. And therefore, the impact on violent bullying could decrease. I think that there will be a long-term positive effect and impact on society at large, just with that one aspect of legislation. And again, policy versus practice, right? I would really love to see that. Anyway, so your question around generational, all to say that older generation 
and I, I feel like I'm in the in the midst of the older and the younger generation. Like I'm in the middle, I feel like a mediator. Uh, <laughs> um, but I feel like I, I'm seeing both at the same time, mm-hmm. right? I could see how limited our vocabulary has been. And so we just couldn't articulate ourselves because we were so limited. We mm-hmm. were using the standards of positions of power and privilege, straightness, whiteness, maleness, you know, to inform us of our decisions for our LGBTQ communities. That's not even included in that standard to begin with. And so we are challenged with that creation. And I know it's slowly happening, you know, like even the way we have now grabbed back and embraced the word queer. In the Mm. early 2000s, we... I was involved with this conversation because I was hosting our our, our pride uh, parade along Broadway at the time. And we had an LGBTQ community center. It's closed down, fortunately. But uh, at the time we had organized Queer Fest. But then we had people of the older generation boycotting it. But we get it, right? Because that term was, is a derogatory term that they had experienced. Mm -hmm. So we have to sort of balance. But I think part of that is having that conversation and acknowledgement and conversation, understanding and acceptance that there are certain words that, you know, hurt some people. We have to use it, you know, uh, sensitively, but also recognize that the younger generation in particular are empowering themselves, right? Like for myself, I didn't always identify as genderqueer, but now I do. Uh, And I think part of that is that empowerment of the word queer, but also on a personal level, it also encompasses both my sexual orientation and my gender expression. So I just find that to be the most representative of how I see myself and how I would like others to see me. And so I think these conversations that need to continue to happen openly, transparently, but with humility and respect. I think that's the way to overcome, you know, like you said, the the throwing shade. Now on a personal level, yes, I do throw shade, but (laughs) I'm rather intentional on who I throw it towards. And it's usually my drag family. It's it's my drag kids. But that's because I understand, fingers crossed, I understand their sense of humor. Mm. So it's actually, it's very much a, uh, an inside joke, so to speak. Yes, other people might hear it, but it's, you know, I'm a performer. So, you know, it's constantly like performing to other people, but uh, oftentimes it's almost always just with my kids because it's intentional. And I know that they can take it. It's not so much to just deliberately hurt someone emotionally or psychologically. It's more about the humor of it, you know, and and also it speaks to our, you know, our LGBTQ history. And I think about, you know, the documentary Paris is burning. Talk about Mm -hmm. throwing shade. That was like the representative uh, <laughs> historical account of throwing shade. They even explain it there, you know, yeah. <laughs> about means or serving tea, you know. Yeah, it's definitely cultural. There's an art to it, for sure. There is absolutely an art to it. Let's, let's talk a little bit about SCS. Oh, my Closing goodness. Closing down, you worked with them for, I don't know, how many years? Yeah, sweet 16 plus years. Wow. Yes, I am heartbroken. I am still in shock. I definitely feel like there is a huge, huge gap in Seattle's queer history and landscape now. Um, You know, I I just, I always just, I try to be consistent and just tell people, please check the website to make sure folks are informed. Uh, So I want to be careful with what I say. I don't want people to take it as like an instruction 
and it's really more personal. I'm absolutely heartbroken. That is where I grew up professionally. I was in my mid-20s and Seattle Counseling Service provided that platform for me to figure out where my career was headed. Mm-hmm. You know, I started there as a database manager when our substance use department was recently acquired by Seattle Counseling from Stonewall Recovery Services. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, which was at the time just up the street on Broadway. And so I was helping that department transition into the larger sales counseling service as a mental health agency. And then I quickly was introduced to Project Neon, a harm reduction program where I became health educator and then all the way to becoming its program manager. And then over time, just because I was surrounded by behavioral health specialists, you know, therapists and counselors, it really inspired me to pursue that. I, I then ended up becoming a, uh, an addictions counselor. And then I became a supervisor. And then from there, kept on going. And I was inspired to continue with higher education. And I, you know, completed my uh, master in social work at the UW. And I really credit my peers, my coworkers there who really just continued to have conversation with me and saw something that I wasn't seeing at the time. To this day, my, I, I credit one of my former supervisors, Kathy Spillman, who really saw what I could do that I couldn't do. And I think even then I was constantly experiencing imposter syndrome. But it took this person to open my eyes. And to honor her, I try to do the same thing when I supervise people. I try to focus on their positive qualities, their positive attributes. And whenever I can, when I see that they're doing something spectacular, amazing, I verbalize that. And I try to do the same thing and inspire them to keep doing good things, better things, the best way they can. Mm-hmm. And then over time, that definitely felt like where my natural habitat yeah. was and is just around queer health. You know, I've dabbled in a lot of things. My first love was physical therapy. And then I went into nursing and it just didn't feel right, you know, and then eventually I became, you know, behavioral health specialist. And although it's a different title, I definitely believe that it's still in the helping field. Mm-hmm. SES has a very special place in my heart because in my early years, roughly 2004, ha- having been crowned at the same time, Miss Gay Seattle, <laughs> right, which is the oldest uh, drag title west of the Mississippi, so they say, mm-hmm. um, I was inspired to produce a fundraiser for Seattle Counseling Service. I had this makeshift desk in the, uh, in the uh, common area, and there were these old posters from like the 70s, maybe even, maybe 80s. Uh, and there were like auctions to fundraise for SES and it inspired like, oh my gosh, I should do something for SES. And lo and behold, I created this like variety show and I dubbed it Icon, a celebration of drag art and life. And then fast forward to 2019, I just kept doing it every year uh, okay. with the blessing of our then executive director, Anna Gettigan, who asked me, after the success of the first one, hey, uh, what do you want to do with this? Oh, I was just, I don't know, I was thinking maybe do it once a year and pick a different place, you know, a different agency each time. And she was like, oh, can it just be SCS? (laughs) Oh, sure. And then it became, if I may say so myself, the talk of the town, it became the the event of the year. And, And it just really brought a lot of joy because it, 
it represented this huge service. It spotlighted the work of Seattle Counseling Service. Yes, mm-hmm. there's the event organizing aspect of it, uh, but it really made, for me, in my eyes, using a, a drag variety show as a means to advertise what is often a taboo subject on mental health. In my own personal experience, I started recognizing that people were approaching me in drag to ask about, to talk about mental health and substance use resources. I started realizing this intersection of drag as a performance art and you know, sensitive topics of mental health. I was able to connect them because I think without the drag being an approachable means to communicate and to interact with me, I don't think they would have approached me otherwise. Because there was so much taboo when we talk about mental illness and mental health and mental wellness. And so I really found joy in seeing that, that they were merging. And so I took advantage of it. Like I, almost every time I was in drag and then whenever I could, I would always talk about SES, not just as a resource, but about its history. You mm-hmm. know, we were founded in 1969, the same year the Stonewall riots happened. I never did get the right answer, but we may have even, in fact, been formed before the riots, the Stonewall riots happened. Mm. But regardless, I remember the late Arlene Nelson, uh, who is a social worker herself and who started there as a volunteer, phone call volunteer. Uh, Back then, she was saying how you had to call this secret number for support, you know, if you were LGBT, and at the time, this was the late 60s, early 70s, no one was really saying queer, right? So LGBT. And they would call this number, but then this number would sort of screen and make sure that the call was legit. And then they were given another number to call. Hmm. Because at the time, it was illegal to be gay. Yeah. Right? Wow. And so she worked on those phone lines, and then she ended up working on those calls and the volunteering, and then eventually became a therapist herself there, and then upon her retirement, still stayed on as a consultant. And then eventually when she really wanted to retire, she still stayed on as a board member. I'm using her just to to show her own lifespan was parallel to Seattle Counseling Service. And she's one example of how many other people had similar experiences with SES being such an an icon in Seattle's history. And yeah, it's just all these things like Ingersoll Gender Center came out of Seattle Counseling Service. I used to always say this story, how we all started. We started at this house on Capitol Hill near what is now Kaiser, like near 15th on, I want to say Malden Avenue. I don't believe the house is there anymore, but we, they used this house. They were able to acquire this house and have meetings there for social support for people like us. But they did it secretly. They did it in the basement. You know, they re- remember that people would like knock on their door, knock on the window aggressively by the police <laughs> to aggravate them, to bully them. And so they would just stay quiet. And there was a time when, according to Arlene, they would, when they started documenting the sessions, they would have these charts next to a, a tank of gas so that they could just light it on fire. And then at some point when they started getting a lot of documents and charts and they needed to archive them, they apparently created a a secret panel in the kitchen cupboard because it was a house and they would hide the forms there so no one would be identified. Wow. And I often would say, you know, we've come a long way, baby. You know? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I mean, to be able to talk about it openly on air 
from yeah, and that, just, that's yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah, and it just breaks my heart because we, we started talking about health disparities mm-hmm. and we need places like SES. And unfortunately, it's the only place for the next month or so. Yeah. That's specifically LGBTQ mental health and behavioral health and substance use. There are individual providers like myself, but we're not an organization the way Seattle Counseling Services. My hope is that, and I know there's a lot of dialogue and it just warms my heart that people are really, you know, are having conversation about how to rejuvenate, you know, bring back SES. I hope that maybe someday it will come back. I wish it would go away because we don't need it anymore, but that's not the case. Yeah. That is not true. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, I'll be hosting and moderating a panel discussion on queer mental health. Yes. You know, the Seattle Pride. In touch with me yeah. That. You I'm know. looking forward to Thank seeing you. Thank that. you. We've got Dr. Peter Shallot, who's mm-hmm. one of the most renowned, if not the most talked about out medical providers in our, in our country. Also a former mm-hmm. guest on the show. Episode two. So you know why. You there, know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To sort of wrap up the topic of SES, just letting our folks know who are listening, please stay informed and maybe perhaps things will change and, you know, reach out to folks, uh, maybe, you know, help uh, if you know anyone who is trying to transfer their care, help them identify an LGBTQ affirming therapist or provider or agency. There are people out there. I know they're doing due diligence and just pay attention to what the leadership is saying via the board or the administration of SES. And I'm, and I'm doing my own way of self-caring by talking to past staff, you know, just reminiscing. Yeah, actually when news broke out, I was on the phone with a couple of old coworkers for hours and I could easily be on the show Hoarders, but anyway, I have all this memorabilia <laughs> that I was just sharing with, you know, with peers of mine from SES, and I just went in the route of positive memories, yeah. and um, just having read, like, why, why it is closing, and it's really unfortunate that the pandemic also hit such an institution yeah. in our, in our uh, community, and uh, my heart goes out to first and foremost the clients of SES, and I hope that they can get to a safe space the way SES was able to provide that. I mean, I'm, I'm doing my own thing. Some folks are contacting me as well, and I'm starting to create a, a growing list of LGBTQ providers or affirming mm-hmm. providers. So if anyone tries to get a hold of me, you know, I'll be able to share that and at least provide some support. Uh, that way and uh, yeah it takes a village we're uh out of time for today i think i know you said you would only need 20 minutes i'm a talker i should have warned you hey i don't i don't mind at all i'm just glad to have you on the show glad to keep people informed speaking of information you already talked about your panel are you going to be doing more performances soon are you going to be yeah oh in fact well by the time this goes out it would have been too late but uh, tonight i'm actually doing a performance uh, a drag show in pioneer square where the gay neighborhood used to be yeah um yeah and it's hosted by caesar hart a drag king uh, personality here in our state uh, but it's quite rare that I, in fact, do perform. Uh, I have a special place in my heart for Caesar Hart, so I said yes to him. But uh, most of my appearances are hosting 
emceeing speaking engagements, you know, much like yeah. the panel that's upcoming on March 21st at Unexpected uh, Improv Theater in, at Pike Place Market, presented by Seattle Pride and Puget Sound Energy. I'll be joined by Kins Devera, uh, Ruth Soto, aka Latin Rose, and Dr. Peter Shallot will be talking about queer mental health. And I'm sure we will discuss the impact of Seattle Counseling Service uh, being gone in just a couple months. So hopefully we'll be able to provide and share with our uh, attendees. It's hybrid. It's both live stream and live, still following COVID guidelines as necessary. And hopefully we'll have some resources for for folks who might be looking to that as a resource with this discussion. Uh, And then the rest of it, just, you know, just on my website, alexamano.com, I post all of my appearances on my calendar page there and folks can follow me on all social media platforms at Alexa Manila. Uh, you know, I really want to thank the Seattle Gay News for constantly supporting the, the, the things that I put my fingers, you know, in and um, uh, uh, that sounded kind of not, not nice. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> things that I dabble in. There you go. I know we have a wide audience, but, you know, um, but anyway, got to keep it sex positive, right? Uh, <laughs> the SCN yeah, will continue just... to support you putting your fingers wherever you have to for as long as we can as long as yeah yeah safely and uh, with, with consent there you yeah. go but truly truly though genuinely i really am so thankful for the seattle gay news you know with uh, george bakan you know that's how it was supposed to be said <laughs> but we all messed it up uh, and then with with your leadership and with his daughter angela i'm just ever so grateful i'm i'm uh you know, I would have been just devastated, you know, if we stopped publishing uh, such an iconic uh, publication, you know. Uh, so thank you for all that you do to uh, to share information uh, in, with our communities. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and this podcast, how awesome that now yeah. SGN is, you know, putting its finger into podcasting. <laughs> putting its, you know, just dipping its tongue, I mean, toes into the 21st century. Right. Um, Be careful, yeah. I can't swim. <laughs> yeah. Well, Alexa, um, again, that's incredibly flattering. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for being here. Thank you, uh, thank you. Oh, 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 I always forget. Oh my gosh. Uh, Pride Asia Fest, Sunday, Memorial Day weekend, May 29th. Come see us. It's public. It's open to the public. It's free. Uh, it's at Hing Hei Park. Uh, for more info, prideasia.org. And of course, you know, Pride Fest is happening in June. And all of that will be in the show notes so that you <laughs> can uh, go attend. All right. Well, thank you, Ash. Thank, thank you. you so much. And we're back. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it half as much as I did or twice as much. I just hope you enjoyed it. Now let's get get to some more serious subjects we're going to talk about the abortion rights rally that you went to uh lindsay that was we already kind of briefly discussed this but people from all over the country flew in like 10 people counter-protesters flew in yeah and this was on um international women's day so that was how they chose to celebrate um taking a vacation i feel really bad i feel like a bad ally to women because I, I forgot to post on in International Women's Day, but I did post on International Funeral Directors <laughs> Day. Like an asshole. <laughs> like, I just, like, I have no excuse. I saw it and I was like, oh, I do kind of miss being able to forget about stuff 
without yeah, looking like fine. a total dick. You know, women are used to being forgotten. That's kind of the whole point of the pay gap. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't mean to no. make feel bad. I feel worse. <laughs> kind of deserve it. Make I... up for it, and next year just send me like a card. Yeah, it was um, it was a pretty crazy event. Um, I live in Capitol Hill, and the rally started um, by the Central College, Central mm-hmm. Seattle College. And I was walking, and from blocks away, I could hear the chants, and I was very confused because the chants I was hearing were "Roe v. Wade has got to go," and I was wondering if this was, you know, so far left it was right, kind of like those yeah. anti-sanctions people. Um, that was not the case. It was just about 10 people with bucket drums and megaphones um, yelling about their hate for abortion and AFAB people being able to have a right to their internal organs. The abortion rights activists kind of did what young idiots do well, and that is just annoy people. And so they circled the bucket drum ladies, and because these were ladies mostly. Actually, there were some men, but they circled the bucket drum people um, and just started, you know, chanting their own chants at them. And even though they were drowned out by the noise of the few um, counter-protesters, it triggered them enough that somebody lashed out in violence. And uh, before I knew it, there was like three people on the ground uh, fighting. One of them was uh, volunteer security for the abortion rights rally. Chaos just kind of ensued for about 10 minutes. People were dropping what looked like mace. I took a picture of it, sent that to you. People were like trying to dispose of that while they could to de-escalate. And then as people moved away from where the conflict was happening, this white dude in a hoodie ran up and spray painted an elderly woman's sign. I saw um, that. Just complete assholery. It's very clear he was not used to using spray no, paint. No, he was very bad at it. You could still read the sign completely through the spray paint. And the lady didn't even realize what he was doing. He was standing there and the sign was so huge. I think she thought he was just like admiring it. And then when she realized, she was like, hey. And then he just ran across the street and like flipped off the ladies. And I was like, what a coward. And he he couldn't have been more than like 16 years old anyways. Um, You know, starting him young with the misogyny. Again, this is where I don't understand right-wing people. Right? Where it's like... We're all about individual freedom and liberties, yada yada. And I am also all about individual freedom and liberties. But it's like, doesn't that start with the body that you inhabit? It's a really interesting topic, and it's something I've debated with my conservative dad, and we can actually agree on, is he, last I spoke with, he's always been pro-choice. Because he's like, you know, the government shouldn't get to control what you're doing to your body. And yet most conservatives, it's not about choice at the end of the day. You know, it's about being able to control female bodies or, you know, people with uteruses. Because again, not everybody that gets an abortion is a woman. But it's about, it's about this kind of controlling of what isn't a cis male body. And it's really sad. Yeah. If the roles were reversed, right... There's no empathy there. Yeah. You know, it was um important author said once, um, if men could get abortions, you would see an abortion clinic on every block. You know, Plan B would be sold in vending yeah. machines. Um, but, you know, it's the fact that, like everything, we just don't invest education. We don't invest time. We don't invest money into things that don't affect cis men it's um why female mortality rates in surgery are higher and why women are more likely to die in a car accident 
and why you know we don't have an effective birth control for women yet you know they tried to create a male birth control that had the exact same symptoms that female birth control has had for decades (laughs) and the fda would not pass it because men complained about mood swings and cramps and all these things that women experience (laughs) every month and they were like oh this is we're not going to pass this this will hurt too many people as a society we don't care about women's rights um and it's sad god so fucking depressing yeah i mean not that it adds any hope to the subject but the group that put on this rally resist fascism they really were targeting younger people and they were calling on the youth to walk out from school especially and a good a good chunk i'd say a fourth or a fourth to a half of the people protesting were students which is always hopeful to see you know the future of america getting involved and caring about these issues Um, and they're not done. They have another march planned for April 9th, so if anybody's listening and wants to come out and support them in a month, um, they're going to keep rallying for abortion rights and against the legislature, especially in the South, that's been kind of attacking these rights. I'm a big fan of public protest, as long as the message is clear. (laughs) That is something I really appreciate about Resist Fascism, is that they are clear. In their name, it says what they're against. And, you know, there's that point (laughs) where the government can't control you to be a certain way or to look a certain way. When are they going to start? I don't want to be alarmist and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy nut. But it starts small and then it's camps. And then it's, you know, it's laws against a a certain type of person. And then it's like any political dissidents, anyone who matches this description is now a political dissident and they're thrown in prison and they're thrown in camps. And I mean, we already see it in our modern prison system, you know, and in the way that our laws are set up against black people and people of color and, you know, certain other ways that can be argued is fascistic well and you know speaking of race as playing into reproductive rights issues um i attended a lecture a couple years ago it was really interesting about how reproductive rights are racial rights it's it's very race based it's kind of a form of eugenics when you really break it down because the people that they're targeting when they take away abortion rights are not necessarily people of color they're white people white impoverished people that are going to end up having more white children and keep the white race going whereas women of color historically have been targeted with forced sterilizations this has been happening up until this century in places like california um, to prevent women of color from being able to have children Um, it's a way that they can control female bodies but also control united states populations um, it's very, it's really fascinating. If you wanted to do more research on it, um, I can give you some books if you want to put them in the show notes or something. Definitely send me those and we'll put those in the yeah. show notes. Um, I had to, I had to take a breath. I was getting worked up and my podcasting voice was turning into like, just like angry white guy. <laughs> you know, guys, this is how it is in the world. And oh, you sound like Donald uh, Trump right now. They're all good people (laughs) on both sides. Both genders are amazing. 
And if I wasn't a man, I would be a turnip. <laughs> That's those are the those are the three genders. Uh, <laughs> man, woman, turnip. Yeah. Anyway, I I had to take a deep breath and get back into like how I actually talk, um, because I don't want to <laughs> turn anyone. Just someone tunes into the show <laughs> midway and it's just me. Ah, hey. That's how I sound when I get worked up. Um, yeah, Lindsay's gonna have some books for you to read in the show notes. Check them out. I am a big fan of educating yourself in all ways. I think knowledge is power. As we always continue to learn, no matter what. Uh, it's always good to educate yourself. I'm gonna have a bit of Mr. Rogers moment right now. Just lean into the microphone, and we're gonna have a gentle sort of come down and sort of relax. Uh, as we close the show for today, because I feel, Lindsay, the world is stressful enough without um, every single podcaster screaming at you about how crazy the world is, right? So, listener at home, before we let you go, we're just going to take a deep breath in. Out through the nose. Wonderful. Mm, yeah. Some happy little trees here. That's nice. And thank you so much for joining us for our show. I apologize that we can get rowdy sometimes. I know, again, life is stressful enough. Um, Lindsay, is there anything that you would like to calmly say before we head out today? Oh, my God. I would just like to say uh, rise up for abortion rights and come to the march on April 9th. That's not too political. Because, you know, on this show, we never get too political. Nope, just, just the right amount. Just the right amount of political. Not um, fully political, yeah. just bi-political. I would also like to say you should check out www.sgn.org. Um, we now have a donate link on there. You can listen to the show on sgn.org. You can also check out the merch store, which does have Radio SGN merch along with other SGN-related products. And you can also pick up the paper. Uh, we do have a map on our website if you'd prefer to read it in physical form. Also, I just want to shout out Otz Balusse, who is our comic writer. Um, his work is now also on the SGN website. Uh, and it's just a hoot. It's way fun reading it all in one go. They're just little four-panel comics uh, called Chicken Head. So if you want to check out Chicken Head, the comic, it's online now. So um, thank you so much for listening. Maybe we'll just do all of our shows like this. This is very relaxing. Yeah, good. Um, I hope you have a calm rest of your week. And until next time, we'll see you in the funny pages. Radio SGN is hosted by A.V. Eichenbaum and Lindsay Anderson and produced by A.V. Eichenbaum. Music for this show was provided by TRG Banks and Jesse Spillane or was provided for free by Anchor. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out on sgn.org or wherever you find podcasts. <laughs>